Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. My work is really about putting some delicious food and context around that. Being Ethiopian could be this. So being Swedish is more than one thing. Again, being African, being Ethiopian, you, you're tied to always work towards a false narrative that is very often pushed out there in the world towards you, but also gives you strong ambition and, and uh, inspiration. So to really have the on-the-ground experience of being able to travel during this time and just see the realities of poverty and then specifically hunger that you know, so many people face on a day-to-day basis, literally like a birth lottery, you know, just because of where you're born, your your next meal isn't a guarantee. And unfortunately here in, in America as well. I'm here in Washington, D.C. with my sister, Debbie Shore. Deb, great to have you back. Yes, great. We're going to have a great show. Thanks. And in New York, two people, and I'm so wishing I were in New York to be with them because they're both amazing. Marcus Samuelson, incredible chef, also cookbook author, and people know him because of his involvement in philanthropy and so many great and important causes. Marcus, I'm so glad you're with us. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, guys. It's going to be fun. Uh, And Lauren Bush Lauren, who I haven't known as long as I've known Marcus, but almost as long because her life is also about food and and, uh, very aligned with Share Strength. It's about feeding kids all over the world through a very innovative organization that she created, she founded, Feed. Uh, I think back in 2007. Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Marcus, let me uh, start with you. You know, people have always been so fascinated by your background, um, Swedish family, Ethiopian roots, the share our strength beginnings were in the famine in Ethiopia uh, in 1984. You bring so many different influences and flavors and spices uh, to your cooking. Talk a little bit about how your background informs that. Well, I'm just like an average Sweetiopian, you know. Ah, (laughs) You've been all over the world, Billy. You know those guys. (laughs) But, you know, I do think that the luxury of being adopted, the luxury actually of being African, is that it ties you, you get windows into different worlds. Again, with the adoption, you... I've been been around. I was lucky enough to get you know be adopted by a wonderful Swedish family and have strong Swedish ties, of course, but also be always kind of knowing that there's something else out there. And Ethiopia, for many people, is known yes through the famine or through Haile Selassie or through its food, but it's more than that, right? Just as much as we are quickly to say what America is and we're defining what America is today at this moment, right? It's more than uh, this quick soundbite that people very often want to label us all over the world. And I, I always feel like uh, my calling for being a chef actually has helped. My work is really about putting some delicious food and context around that, right? Being Ethiopian could be this. So being Swedish is more than one thing, or living in New York and Harlem or being American is more than the one thing. And I think that's such a blessing for me. And it's something that, again, being African, being Ethiopian, you, you're tied to always work towards a false narrative that is very often pushed out there in the world towards you, but also gives you a strong ambition and, and uh, inspiration. Oh, you want to do more. You really want to do more. So you kind of want to, you want to um, show that the narrative is not the whole you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and, and that people 
have great ambition. You can be like when I go back, Bill. When I go back to the hut that I'm from, I'm from a. I was born in a hut in the first three years of my life. And what part of Ethiopia? In um, about an hour and a half um, uh, uh, west from Addis Ababa. So it's a hut that is like the half the size of this studio, right? Mm. So six people living there. And I go back every year, and it gives me so much strength. In the beginning, you know. It gave me fear, right? Like when I went back the first time as an adult, it scared me. But once you sort of get over that fear, it also gives you strength. Like, wow, you can come from a hut like this. And with sort of luck, faith, and a bunch of great people working together, you can get out and, 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 and you can create an interesting perspective. And that's what I've been able to do. The, the place where you're born, the hut that you're referring to, is still there today. It is definitely. And how old, how old were you as an adult when you first went back? Twenty four. And, and, and uh, how old were you when you left it? Three. Three. So did you no memory of it uh, really, or did you? None. Okay. My, my my sister is a little bit older than me. She was five when she was adopted, so she she knew it better. She knew the language better, and it's actually the same age as my son is right now. He's three, so I'm thinking about it very emotionally right now yeah. through this his lens. Right? Does that mean that everything that we sort of installed in him will be gone? You know what I mean? I'm thinking about it very much for this time, and it, you know, he's just being three, trying to go on a scooter, and <laughs> like, Dad, why are you crying? <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, I mean, Marcus, what was it like the first time you walked in? Like, just what did you feel inside? Mm. You know, to be honest, it was really my sister that was searching. Mm. I was busy just doing what we do as chefs, searching, cooking, and I wasn't really on that path. And she's like, we have to go. And then I was like, then one day she emailed me. She's like, I found him. She found our birth father. I was like, what? Wow. And I was like, well, I ha- we have to ask mom. We have to ask our Swedish mother because if she's okay with us going, because I don't want to, I didn't want this to be a reflection of my parents. Do you know what I mean? And I asked my mom, she's like, are you crazy? You better go. I want to go. <laughs> so she came with us. Wow. And you know, you, you fly, as you have done, you fly into Addis and it's different, but you're still in a, in a modern airport. And then you leave Addis. And then you leave the road, and then you're on the dirt road, and then you're on red clay, and then you take a left, and there's your hut. And it's emotion. It was wow. I can't really describe that feeling, pulling in and be like, "There's my father that I've never met before." You know, really, it gave me strength, but it 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 took a while. It took a while to um, uh, adapt to it. And and now you're saying you every time you go back, you visit it. I do, yeah. and uh, we the kid. He had eight sisters. I had I got eight sisters and brothers as well that I didn't know about, and now they're actually all living in the city. But I wanted to keep that place because I I want my son to see it. I want my family to be part of it. I was going to ask about your father, and had he not obviously you hadn't con- you know you hadn't been in contact all those years from three to whatever you said twenty five. So did he know that you existed and where you were? Uh, he did. He, you know, I- adoption is very complex. My mother, we all had tuberculosis, and my mother uh, passed away in TB. Uh, we survived, and he was in the countryside, uh, and um, you know, being a very poor, poor farmer. And I, you know, I don't hold. We don't hold any grudges or anything like that. It was just a different time, different sure, era. Sure. He, he went back and never really got. I'm just also a person who who couldn't. Um, Right, right. So, 
illiteracy. This is just a completely different place. But um, he didn't know that we went to Sweden. Uh, and it was fascinating to... He just passed away uh, 18 months ago, and he died in 90. And it was great that we had we had 20, we had 20 years together, and it was amazing. Wow, it was amazing! I can relate just a little bit because I just introduced my daughter, who's 17, to her father for the first time, who lives yeah. in Mexico, and she met him when she was yes. two. She does not yeah. remember him, although I thought she would because you know she met him when she was two, and then I talked about him a lot so that like it yeah. would sort of stay alive, but it, it kind of faded. Anyway, she just mm. met him. Uh, for the first time in the spring, um, and she's awesome. got a bunch of half brothers and sisters. But we're learning at this moment the definition of family, right? And la familia, what that is, you yeah. know. And and every family is different, and it's okay, you know what I mean. And I think that that's something as an adopted kid that you learn right away. Like oh, this is our family structure; it's yes. a little bit different than the Johnsons next to us. But you know, we're family. You know, for me, it was particular because my cousins were also adopted; they were Koreans. Uh, my auntie was Jewish. My other cousins were French Canadians. So it was constantly a bunch of different cultures at the table, you know, arguing about the Lingaberry Jam, you know. But again, we had a good time arguing at least. And and the cooking started, I guess, obviously from your your Swedish family. Yeah, from my grandmother, and uh, it was really rooted in in poverty. You know, not that she she grew up very poor. She wasn't. They weren't poor. They were middle class by the time we got to Sweden. But her stories and her cooking was rooted in something, right? There was, if she bought a piece of chicken, it was chicken soup and sandwiches the next day. There was chicken dumplings the third day, and her storytelling is really why I started to cook because it wasn't just about the food. It was everything else that I learned and and received from her, you know. Foraging was not something you put on Facebook, right? It was like you did it because it was a necessity and she had a basement like everyone in Sweden and uh, that's where you stored your blueberries or your blackberries and you had to, you know, there was like her little pantry and, and this was real life, you know. Uh, Marcus, thanks for sharing that. Uh Lauren Bush, Lauren, I know that you've also got a passion for what's going on globally because you were, for many years, very connected to the World Food Program, traveled with us. Talk about how, uh, I want to, in a minute, talk about where uh, feed came from because it's really one of the mm-hmm. most innovative and important anti-hunger organizations in our country today. But start well, by telling me. that is generous coming from you. No, Thank it you, Billy. Is. It certainly <laughs> is. It's really incredible. Um, and, but, but start by telling us how you got connected to the World Food Program and what that experience was like. Yeah. So my journey started as a sophomore in college. I um, got connected to the World Food Program, who at the time was looking to get more students active and aware about the issue of world hunger and then specifically about what the World Food Program was doing um, around the world. And, you know, kind of as luck would have it because I was studying anthropology and minoring in photography and just philosophically, I guess, reading books and studying these issues. Um, So to really have the on the ground experience of being able to travel during this time as well with, you know, through the lens of the World Food Program and be on the ground in countries in Asia and Latin America and Africa and just see the realities of poverty and then specifically hunger that, you know, so many people face on a day-to-day basis, literally like a birth lottery, mm-hmm. um, similar to what Marcus is saying, you know, just because where you're born, your your next meal isn't a guarantee. And unfortunately here in, in America as well. 
So that's sort of, you know, once you're exposed, I would say, to an issue like that um, and in that kind of personal uh, a way, um, and at such a time in my life when I still had, you know, all the um, flexibility and the luxury of time and really kind of taking a step back and thinking, what do I want to make of this? Um, and at the same time, I loved design and fashion in New York City and was also spending, you know, school breaks. Um, when I wasn't traveling with the World Food Program, I was doing um, fashion design courses at Parsons or Central St. Martin's or internships in the city at fashion design houses. So I, it, it felt like I was toggling these two very different kind of life paths and, and experiences. And Feed came out of this aha moment really to combine the both and, and create a way for people to get involved in the issue of hunger as, as consumers, as young people who don't have a big checkbook to write, you know, to the UN and just as a way for people to just begin to engage with the issue of hunger, which can o otherwise be, as you know, this sort of massive, very daunting, overwhelming kind of world condition that people, unfortunately, many people have just accepted as a, a way of life, which it doesn't have to be. And, and when you were visiting countries with the World Food Program, uh, where did you go and what did hunger look like to you? And what did it, um, you know, I mean, yeah. how, how did you take it in? What did you do with it? I mean, each region, each country is so different. Um, but my very first trip with the World Food Program was to Guatemala, which I think kind of naively prior to that, I, I really thought of dire poverty and hunger as sub-Saharan Africa and what you kind of grow up seeing pictures of. And then to take this relatively quick flight and land. Mm -hmm. And I remember I fell asleep in the car from the airport and we were, by the time I woke up, we were in like very rural mountainous Guatemala. It was beautiful, but I was taken immediately into this clinic where kids were taken who were severely malnourished. And just the shock of seeing kids who, for lack of, of food, something as basic and, you know, needed um, and simple as food, were in these states of, you know, they were literally tired looking they were sick looking they could barely feed themselves they had their families had basically moved in with them to help take care of them because it was very basic and they were be being given this like plumpy nut this you know nutrient rich paste and anything to kind of get them the calories they so desperately needed and often i mean one boy i met there which is like forever seared in my memory he was i met him on the way out I literally could have guessed he was maybe three, maybe four. He was actually seven. Mm -hmm. And so just the physicality of what mal malnourishment looks like over a long time and the effect that has and just there's no way to c come back from that level of malnourishment. So that was a very jarring <laughs> start to my journey and extremely eye-opening and obviously very emotional. And then right after that visit, we went just— And this we is why you were still a college student, Lauren? Yeah, I was I was a sophomore in college. Wow. My mom actually was on this trip with me and my sister. So very just new experience. I had traveled. I was lucky. I grew up traveling the world. I had been to countries like, you know, Thailand and different places that aren't as developed, but never saw this level of, of poverty and hunger. And then we went down the road and we visited a school. And at the school, kids were getting a free nutritious school lunch, a very basic school lunch. And they were playing and they were exactly like you would expect kids to be. They were curious and excited and like wanted 
welcome the distraction to the school day that these sort of random visitors were having. And what we learned was that really the school feeding program, the school lunch, was one of the primary reasons they were going to school and then staying in school, you know, with that education, have a better shot of getting out of the poverty cycle they were born into. So just the, even just from that very, very first trip and very first experience, the contrast between this therapeutic feeding center in this school was like, wow, here's an answer. Here's something we need to get behind school feeding. And then on my other, you know, many travels around the world, a big focus has just been on schools and school feeding. Um, so that really is primarily what feed feed supports. And I know that Marcus has also been a UNICEF ambassador for uh, many years, has the same kind of interest in the global work as well as work closer to home through City Harvest. Marcus, I want to. I, I also want to make sure people get a chance to hear about uh, how you took this passion from cooking and ended up with. I don't know. I guess I would almost call it an empire. You've got a number of restaurants cookbooks. You're just a, you're a, a food icon. I think of uh, Red Rooster in Harlem um, as one that I'm familiar with, but there are many others. Just what was your path to becoming your own restaurateur and chef? Well, I, I wouldn't be here without, I had great mentors, right? I had a lot of people that invested their emotional intelligence, but also like their skill sets with me. And I think that wouldn't have happened without my parents' structure in terms of my p- parents didn't know that much about restaurant life. But, you know, at a very early age, I got a chance to, you know, go to Japan. Uh, that was very different, you know. And then had a chance to go to Switzerland to do traditional hospitality work in at the Victoria Jungfrau. And that was the first time I was like, wow, this is for real. This is a career, you know what I mean? Like, when I worked in kitchens in Sweden, the oldest guy I knew was like 23. When you go to <laughs> when you go to Japan, you see a sushi chef that has worked with it, and he's 65, right? He's done this all his life. It changes your, you know, you're 18. It changes your perspective. When I come to Switzerland, you know, I saw lifers and their level of professionalism. And then for me, this was all about building to go into France to a three-star Michelin restaurant. And I worked at Georges Blanc. That was another level of, you know, Chef Blanc was, he was, who is Vonas. He is the village of Vonas. I never thought a chef could be connected to the whole village, um, you know. And that was fascinating. Now, just taking notes, just working, taking notes. Um, when you say he's connected to the whole village, what do you mean? Well, I mean, if you worked at the bakery, you worked for Chef Blanc. If you worked at the train station, most people coming there went to Georges Blanc or stayed at at the uh, hotel or, you know, whole village connectivity through food. Or if you grew rhubarb, you sold them to the mm. Blanc family. Mm-hmm. So there was this ecosystem that it wasn't just these guys shouting on the line anymore, right? There was a whole farm to table, even if that term wasn't there, right? But if you sold corn in August, that went to the family. And, you know, there was this, you know, there was so many aspects of the life I'm living today that happened there at a very maybe slower pace. But I learned that, like, with Chef Blanc, he always had a helicopter behind his um, house because we had to do, we could do lunches in Amsterdam or we could do lunches in Milano. I mean, before there was like sort of like super celebrity chefs, he did these things, and we were the kids that he put in the helicopter, and we had to get the piece, and we had to do the dishes. And I'm saying had to, but it was the highest level of luxury, right, 
to be around that and learn from that. And I took that and I was like, how do I, how do I compartmentalize that? And then at the same time, you know, it's a different time, different era. And, you know, it was very clear to me that they, the, the people that I worked with always said, well, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I want to do the same thing as you guys are doing. And they were very clear on that as a black chef. Those were not the options that you could have. You can't have those ambitions. And as a young kid, what do you do with that, right? And these were not, they were not racist at all. It's just, they have, they were just broken down. Have you ever seen one? Do you know anyone? You're actually the only black person working here at three-star Michelin restaurants anywhere. So they were just very pragmatic and matter-of-fact about it. So I was like, you're right, but that I can't change my ambition because there is no present, right? So, like, you know, I talked to my dad, and he's like, well, you got to go to America. And it's like, I don't know why, I don't know how, how, but you got to go to New York. And that's what I did. And I always went to New York with the idea that I could add value. Not knowing how, but I knew I would get a job and I knew I would get add value. And, you know, when we met, when I was working at Aquavit, that's really where I started to learn again. And I learned from people like Jean George, Craig Coons. I learned from Leah Chase. I learned from Nancy Silverton, like icons in our Jonathan Waxman, people that we all, you guys think about them as chefs, but I look at them as my teachers, right? These are the these are my uncles and aunties that I learned from. And little by little, you know, doing the event, but, you know, if I could get 20 minutes with Nancy or 20 minutes with Jonathan and or like sitting with Miss Leah Chase and, you know, now you get a perspective from, you know, running a restaurant in New Orleans since the 40s. You know what I mean? That's a whole other layer, right? So those were the moments, you know, it's, for me it's never been about money. It was more about how can I learn? And then Chef Charlie Trotter was really the one that said, okay, I'm going to help you. You need help. So he used to come into Aquavit and edit my food, you know, and tell me what would work and not work. Once, you, once you're given that sort of perspective and then you come from a place like Ethiopia, which you never really forget about, you also start to ask yourself, you know, what if I can do more? What if the lens of dining doesn't have to be through one guide? Or, or what if the landscape of customers, staff can be a little bit broader, right? And for me, it took me not until post 9-11 when I realized that, what are we doing this for? Like nothing is promised. It was really post that that I was like, only time I've actually questioned to why do I live in America? Why do I live in New York? But that event and the people that I, that I knew that uh, passed away really got me to ask these questions for myself. And a month later, I started to look for to move to Harlem. And that was really the eight-year journey of thinking through and learning about Harlem as a place. And out of that, my, my answer to that kind of life crisis, but change, I would say, became Red Rooster with the in and of and the inclusiveness and by one culture but for everyone, uh, that was really what made me think about that. It wouldn't have happened without sort of this major interruption. I'm thinking about, you know, when you were naming your mentors, and I remember you, mm-hmm. were, you were so eloquent, Marcus, when we did the tribute to Danny mm-hmm. Meyer. 
I don't think everybody would, you know, be quite as intellectually curious as you've been throughout your life and, and the people you've met that have influenced you that have, you know, it sounds like every little piece is really, which I guess is true for everybody, but you've had a pretty extraordinary you know, back, you yeah. know, experience. And I think, and actually, you know, when you said, you know, coming from Ethiopia, that's something you never leave behind. Some people do leave things behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really interesting to talk, to hear you talk about how that has stayed with you. Uh, but I think, I think, Bill, I think, Billy, like the, the, this moment, right, we're in, right, so divisive. But, but in many ways, the blessing, if you know how to turn your energy, right? As an immigrant, you get challenged every day. Mm. And I look at it like, thank you for inspiring me. <laughs> and as a black man, you get like inspired every day by these knuckleheads, right? And I'm like, thank you. And like, then it's really about how do you turn that sort of like false narrative? And, and that, once you find that, and that could be from whatever your sort of because we all have this thing that we feel we want to be felt and heard, and, and we need that inner energy and en- engine to get revitalized every now and then. And I think, I think those things about being an immigrant, being adopted, coming from Africa, have given me the tools to say, you know what, I can wake up every morning. I know that the things are stacked against you, but I thank you for the opportunity, and I'm going to crush it. Well, you know, that's so similar to a conversation we, we, we just had. We uh, earlier today taped a conversation with Dan Giusti, who was the, you know, the mm-hmm. chef, obviously, at uh, Noma in Copenhagen and is now working yep. to transform uh, meals in schools. And he was talking about all these formidable obstacles and all the things that people say can't be done. And some of the, you know, initial mm-hmm. criticism that they had, even from kids who would, you know, on, he was telling us on, you know, evaluation <laughs> forms, you know, what can we do different? Try harder. Uh, you know, th- th- things like that. How do I improve? Do everything <laughs> yeah, different. You do, know? Yeah. Do things differently. But he was saying all of that just motivated him to, yeah. to go farther. Uh, Lauren, you know, I, your your family is kind of uh, the Bush family is iconic, obviously for service to country. It's an ethic that's run through you know almost every member of your family, and now you're kind of uh, embodying it, it, it as well. Is that something that uh, you felt you had to be conscious of it? How much of mm. that propelled you, or you know, were you kind of always on this path? No, I mean, it definitely was an influence. I think when you're in it and growing up in it, it's not something you're conscious of per se. But now growing up around people who had influence and had dedicated their lives to service in such an intimate way, I think just empower, like, I feel very lucky to have had a front row seat to that. And I do think I grew up feeling empowered that I too could, I, I politics is not my calling, um, but in my own way, make a difference. And that some par- like good portion of my life and like life energy should be dedicated to that. But it was never something my family sort of sat us all down and said, here's what you need to do. Your dad, Neil Bush, uh, mm-hmm. was or maybe still is uh, very involved with the Corporation on National Service or an AmeriCorps. Yeah, he's very he's the chairman of the Points of Light Foundation. And the Points of Light Foundation. That's right. Exactly. Which is trying to carry on the mantle that my grandfather helped start with the points of light, kind of encouraging volunteerism and shining a light on people who are doing amazing things every day who just don't, you know, necessarily um, get that light shown on them and helping empower that. So actually, I'm really excited in a few weeks where my dad, myself, a few others have helped organize the first ever George H.W. Bush 
Points of Light Award here in New York City. Mm. Um, so something we'll do every year. Just as a, a there's a daily Points of Light Award that's happening in, the, in, in America and around the world, but just as an added kind of yearly spotlight on a few people who are doing really extraordinary things. So that's been my side hustle for the last few months. I was uh, at an event with your dad a couple of years ago, and he was talking mm-hmm. about your work to an audience, and he got uh, so emotional. Emotional, oh. it was really. <laughs> no, it was really touching to just see how much pride oh, he has in what sweet. you're accomplishing and what you're carrying on. It was it was really very moving. But that's very nice uh, to hear. Tell us about where the idea for Feed came from, and uh, for, I mean, tell us what it is, because a lot of people know it from the uh, the products that have Feed, you know, uh, as an emblem kind of stamped on them that can be bought a lot of different places now, and uh, they often say, you know, give a sense of the equivalency of how many kids will be fed or how many meals will be mm-hmm. purchased if you buy that product. But describe uh, where the idea came from and how it's operating today. Basically, we make products, mainly bags. And for every bag we make and sell, there's a number on it that clearly signifies the amount of school meals we're able to donate. And those meals, um, as you well know, now go not only through the World Food Program um, to some of the poorer countries around the world, but also via No Kid Hungry. So via Share Our Strength um, right here in our backyards, which is also really important. So basically, after going and seeing the issue of hunger and wanting you know, as a student sort of ambassador, spokesperson to create a way to engage young people in the fight to end world hunger, which is this sort of, again, just massive, overwhelming, abstract issue that feels very big and too big to tackle. And I I really, again, love design too. So kind of the combination of many factors. I also actually, when I thought of the idea, I was studying abroad in Australia. And everywhere in Australia, people are using reusable bags. It was very passe to use a plastic. I don't even know if they allowed plastic bags at this point. This was way ahead of us. This was like 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. So just being in that environment for seven or so months, I thought, okay, let's combine reusable bags, which is so important for our environment, with this very tangible, measurable way to give back and really empower people to, um, yeah, to become donors through being consumers but do so in a really tangible way. So we also host Feed Suppers, which is this kind of grassroots way for people to gather with their friends in their community and and give back in that way. But most of the meals we've raised to date are through, yeah, through the sale of products, through partnerships we've done. So really, I think of our, you know, Feed as this conduit to get people involved in the issue of hunger and giving back, but also as kind of a, a marketing arm and fundraising arm for great organizations like No Kid Hungry, that are on the ground in the schools, World Food Program, you know, giving the meals um, and reaching kids and really, you know, making a difference in these kids' lives. Well, you know, it strikes me just, at, you know, when I think of what you do, uh, Lauren, is that you've done something that's so core to our work, which is you've found a way to use your, you know, sharing your passion and your strength, right? Like through design with what really touched you when you started to travel around the world. So just kind of bringing those two things together um, and sharing your strength in a way that, you know, really makes a difference in community. Thanks, Debbie. Yeah, I feel like whenever I talk to young people or college students who are very much where I was 15 years ago saying, okay, I really, you know, want to go do photography, but I really want to give back. Like I do just believe now more than ever, there's a way to kind of combine what would look like very different passions and make them into one and and 
you know, I feel like I hit the jackpot in many ways to wake up every day and get to do, be an entrepreneur, be a design, scratch the designer itch, um, but also do so with the like bigger purpose and mission of, of helping kids in need. But also that pathway, right? Like sometimes people think about donating their time or donating their energy into something that's what your parents do, right? But if mm-hmm. you can actually un- understand and connect with something at an early age, yeah, right? Now you have a, a, a formula that you can continue to do. It's like, no, I'm a donor. I'm, I just hosted a party or I just, I just bought a yeah. bag and I made a difference. Those are feel-good moments that you can't really – you can't quantize it necessarily in money, but it gets people into uh, uh, an issue yeah. uh, that they may or may not would have known about. And that's really, that's make it cool. That make it younger, and, you know? That's the thing. I mean, we want to, we always are like, we have to be solution oriented. We have yeah. to be positive. I mean, hunger is a daunting and often very sad topic, but we keep it very positive and very action oriented. And Marcus, uh, you've also started an organization, uh, having you, that works on food and water issues in uh, Ethiopia? Yeah. My, it was really my my wife, very similar, that, you know, being from Ethiopia, but how can she help out? How can we make an impact? And not focusing on Adi. So uh, three goats focus on women to get access to water, uh, access to books and, and of, of course, food, but mainly around clean water. And we go to very difficult areas. It's, it's because most kids and most organizations in Ethiopia are around Addis, so that we feel like those kids are good in a way. They have other people that can help them. But where, where the what you don't hear about it is very often young girls borderlines to other countries or they're f- far away from the capital. So that's what we've been able to focus with and partner with the three goats to focus on young girls and women and, and water is the number one issue that we we, we tackle, but also uh, schoolwork and, and access to um, healthy food as well. And why why called three goats? My wife just went one, one year. She's like, I can't sit here on the sideline. There was a famine in Ethiopia. And she was like, I can't, I can't just be here. Like, I, I got to go. And she still have a lot of family in Ethiopia. So, yeah, you should go down to your brothers and sisters and figure out what you can do on ground. So they got to this place, um, Togayali, which is on the border to Somalia. It's actually in a place where at that point had no border, whether it was Somalia and Ethiopia. It's almost like in a place where no man's land. And she started to, uh, she, we brought books, we brought gifts, we brought all this stuff, food, all this stuff. But she read for the tribe every day. And by the time when she had to leave a couple of weeks later, the tribe came and wanted to give her a gift. And, and they gave her three goats. Uh, <laughs> that was her gift. That wow, gift that wanted wow. to give back. And she's like, I can't take this. It's like, <laughs> but I'm like, that's the name. That's it. Because it can't be more Great authentic name. and organic mm. than that. And we've had um, we've learned a lot, and how we learned we're learning the complexity sometimes about starting an organization, which all you guys know about, and then doing that, you know, cross continent, mm-hmm. uh, and how we have to partner. So we're learning, we learned a lot, and we enjoy it. Uh, we've been able to help a lot of young young women at this point. There's, it's been um, very rewarding for for them and for us. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. so happy to hear both of you talking about the global need and how you're finding ways to, um, you know, uh, build community and help people globally. We, as Billy started out by saying that we were, you know, inspired by or started by in 1984 because of the Ethiopian famine. 
and we've always had like a very small kind of footprint there but now we have you know decided that we wanted to align our global work with our domestic work so we're we're also now looking at school meals and how we can improve school meals and and sort of share what we've learned over the years with a couple of other organizations so we've landed on this one organization in India that we're working with Akshaya Patra I don't know Lauren if you've mm, come across them at yeah, all yeah we worked um, with them a little bit yeah, they're great so they're great and they're just doing you know massive feeding across India uh, with with a lot of the same uh, ideas that we think about, whereas if you feed kids, they're going to grow up and you know be you know uh, better educated, fewer health problems, uh, ready to really inherit and take on that you know the country. Uh, and so we're working with them. But the the bigger area where I think share our strength can really help, in addition to the grants that we're going to give, is whether or not we can export any of our fundraising models in certain countries obviously doesn't work everywhere there's a lot of countries where it would not work but there are countries like india like mexico with growing economies and a and a pretty robust culinary industry that have hunger uh, and organizations that are equipped to you know to to uh feed kids and deal with hunger but but could possibly also look at what we built in terms of the culinary industry that w- that we've galvanized and figure out ways to do that there. So things like our dine campaign, which engages mm-hmm. the chain restaurant industry, not just the fine dining, right, which is kind sure, of where we started sure. and where we've been known. But we now work with, you know, 15, 20,000 uh, uh, fast casual and chain restaurants. Yeah, sure. And, you know, those exist in India and Mexico. So we're starting to explore those opportunities. Can we help train, teach, consult uh, in some way, not obviously not going in and, you know, starting anything ourselves, but going in and meeting the chefs in the culinary industry to see if there is an interest in, because I think that would be the way to really sustain some of the fundraising that they'll need as they continue to uh, look at the you know huge number of kids that they're trying to feed. I, I, I think you can always add value because you come from the right place and you have a lot of experience, right? And that I think that's a very important thing to hold on to because that comes from years of doing this work. Um, fundraising is very tricky because culturally it could, it could locally look very different from, from each place, right? Um, if you look at Sweden, for example, you think about Sweden and you pay a lot of taxes, so therefore the fundraising community is not mm-hmm. as big because the state should take care of it. Uh, not saying that's right, but that's the logical sure, way sure. of thinking there. Right. If I think, I think about very often in, in Africa, the taking care and extended... So I've looked at my, my wife's family. They probably raised 100 kids. In, in our way of viewing that, that would be done through a community organization, but they are the organization. Her mm-hmm. family is the organization. Yeah. So her mom raised them. And when they were out of the house or started to leave the house, she took in the rest of the village's kids, right? So, so there is organically how people solve issues on the ground is so much around culture and spirituality and tradition. But as these places, as you talk about India and Mexico and other places – you know, more connected with internet and also people are coming back into the brain drain that people left before. Now people are coming back. They're also coming back with our ideas. So I do think that now are the now is the time where you can actually do that because you have an enormous amount of people moving back to Mexico, moving back to right. India, 
with what they learned from London or America or wherever it might be, not only financially, but actually also culturally. I also think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from them. We are the richest, most connected country in the world, yes, have massive food challenges in this country. So I, for me, it's really always think about how can I cook with a spiritual compass in this country? And that's something that I learned from Ethiopia. So you, you that have traveled through the organizations, always think about that long plane ride. What not only do I bring to Africa or India, what can I actually bring back home that I can sort of impact my organization here? Because mm-hmm. I think that we're in massive need of that too. Yeah. Lauren, um, so uh, since you're sitting there with Marcus, who's a prolific author and great storyteller, mm-hmm. and I know that you have a passion for telling story as well, um, I don't know, Marcus has quite a number of books. Are you, Lauren, thinking of writing one? Because as, I, as you were talking about you know, uh, the advice that you pass mm-hmm. on to younger people of college age who are in the position you were once in and how to just kind of go for it, uh, it sounds to me like there's a book there. Oh, well, again, means a lot coming from a great author like yourself, Billy. I love your books. Um, No, not currently. (laughs) I'm like, I have two little ones and a full-time job, so I feel very busy right now. But um, never say never. Soon. Coming soon. I don't know. 2022. I I think it was worth it. I don't know. 2022. (laughs) I actually, yeah, some ideas percolating, but Good. nothing immediately. <laughs> uh, speaking of your two little ones, I've read enough of your blog yeah. to know that uh, being a mom has really impacted the way you think about this actual work at Feed. Um, yeah. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, thank you for checking out the Feed blog. Um, yeah, I think it kind of actually took me by surprise. So I was, I would think, um, eight years in, nine years into feed when I had my first son, James, who's also three. Marcus has Mm. a three-year-old adorable boy too. Um, And I took a giving trip a year after he was born. And just to see mothers with their baby, like with their kids who are clearly malnourished and clearly not getting what they need. And yet these mothers are as doting and as loving as any mothers anywhere. It just, sorry. Um, Sweet. No, it just, I mean, even now, it just, it, it, it hits you in a very different way as a mom now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so much of your day and your concern is around what your kids are eating and how healthy they are and are they happy and thriving. Mm. And then to visit places and see communities and visit specifically, you know, moms, for me, was that trigger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just see how you know, literally they want the very, very best for their kids, but they just literally can't provide it. And because of that, their kids are, um, yeah, clearly physically and mentally stunted. was very difficult, as you can see. So, um, or here. <laughs> oh, I, to- I totally get it. Um, I really do. Yeah, it just, it, it, I think it put things, it, I don't think, I know, it has put things in perspective in a new way. I think becoming a parent just opens your heart like wide open um in a way for me i was o- always a bit of a softy but it has so has sweet. made me um it's beautiful no even more even more um 
I guess, empathetic. So we're running out of time. We're going to end with uh, one of our favorite questions. I'll let Debbie ask it. Yeah, especially we have two New York, you know, two New Yorkers on the phone, and one one is a one is a great chef. So the question is, what is your go to restaurant? Maybe a place that like nobody's ever heard of, or you know, or a place someone's heard of, but like kind of not that you know, not the most popular uh, known restaurant. But where where do you go when you just kind of like want something to eat? Well. It can't be your own to, restaurant, so that's no, 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 <laughs> not, come on. No. It used to be Chops, and um, that was, um, you know, it used to be in the West Village, and Kenny um, was just an amazing storyteller. There was all the rules. You were not allowed to be a party of five. You knew who you were. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was, um, it was just one of again one of those. Re- I used to go with. Kim that started Paper Magazine, and it was one of the reasons why I wanted to come to New York. It was weird. It was different. If you call Chopson, he would say... Chopson. Chop. Yeah. Chopson? Yeah. S-A... No, S-H-O-P-S-I-N. And it's not around Chopsin. anymore? Is it gone? No, it's not. He just passed, but ah. it's also where, like, John Lennon used to go there. Like, it, cool. it's just one of these iconic wow. uh, places where the family, if you called, right, he say, we're not a restaurant, we're, we're, we, we, we sell shoes. You know what I mean? They're, they didn't want any type of publicity. <laughs> <laughs> <We're> not, <laughs> who, who gave you this number? And, Marcus, what, what kind of cuisine was it? Is this is one of these magical Jewish deli mm. di- diners, wow. but there was maybe like sixty items on the menu. How far <laughs> so it was more like a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, but like yeah. the stories, it was just like um, uh, a dish could be called "Sisters on My Blisters," and you know, it's like mother-in-law. My mother-in-law hates me, or like it was so artistic. Uh, Tim Robbins used to be a dishwasher there. Um, they made a documentary about him before he died. It's called um, um, I, like to, I, I Like to Catch Flies. It's amazing. So, it's wow. That, that, I didn't expect that. That's a good me. one. Yeah. That was, it's just magic. You just That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. You got one for us, Lauren? Well, besides Red Rooster, which I am a regular at. Yeah. Um, oh, my goodness. I'm a vegetarian, lifelong vegetarian, which actually says even a lot about Red Rooster, the fact that I love it, because it's obviously very meat-heavy, too. But um, I love Butcher's Daughter. Good good ambiance. One thing I'm very excited about that I'll share with you, Lauren, is I'm the opposite of a lifelong vegetarian, but I had, uh, two nights ago, for the first time in my entire life, I had cauliflower. Oh, think? for the first time ever? First time roasted, ever. Roasted, I bet it was roasted. Uh, it was roasted. Who says the world is not changing? Yeah, exactly. Come on now. <laughs> I was so excited. I, I'm telling everybody I know. It's, uh, not, the you know, cauliflower it's steak. It's not a coincidence. I would have brought it up whether vegetarianism came up or not on yeah. this podcast because I'm so covered excited. It, probably covered in butter and Parmesan cheese. Hummus. There was a lot of hummus okay. with it. Yeah, Ooh. but it was, it there was good. Is I now, there is now hope. There is now hope. You know, with... <laughs> With that, yeah, I'm, 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 I see new opportunities. Yeah. Now. <laughs> All right, we're coming uh, to Red Rooster. We're going to continue this yeah. conversation on the yeah. four of us at Red Rooster sometime very soon. I hope we've thank got to wrap up. Us. I want to thank you both so much, Marcus Samuelson from Red Rooster and other re- restaurants, and 
Lauren Bush Lauren Feed's got a website, right? Just feed.org. Best way to find it. Feedprojects.com. Feedprojects.com. I'm sorry. Feedprojects.com. Okay. But uh, people need to go there and learn more about how they can get involved in this important work. Um, I want to thank you both. Thank you for all your work and your partnership. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It means a lot. Thank you. And thanks always to my sister, Debbie Shore, to Paul Whittle, our producer, Woody here at District Productive, and the team at Share Our Strength. You can find our podcast at Apple Podcasts and at adpassionandstir.com. Uh, please go on and rate us, rank us, subscribe, share it with your friends. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.